back and GHQ was ordering him to go up and banking his treasonable profits at the same time. But Mark did not receive any decorations or commendations for his undercover work. The military takes care of its own. A pack of dedicated goons caught Mark alone in a warehouse and beat him with fists, boots, and lead pipe, leaving him for dead. Only Mark's rage and monumental will for vengeance kept him alive and able to crawl out the door into the street. He collapsed, but not before help was summoned. Three months later, he limped out of Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco, pronounced well enough to be discharged. But he would carry the scars and handicaps of the beating for the rest of his life. Mark found himself cut adrift. He had no desire to go back to his civilian job of insurance investigation, even though he had been excellent at his work. He was so good he generated the ire of his fellow workers. Most of the men ignored him, but soon office politics began to hurt his advancement and his work. Then he dug too deeply into a fire claim, and three men beat him up in a parking lot. They took his wallet, so he had to report it as a robbery. On the next case, he was offered a bribe, and later found that a deposit had been made in his bank account. Someone had deposited $3,000 in his name. He told the bank it was a mistake, and refused to accept the money. All that, and the beating in Nam, only hardened his growing resolve that something had to be done about the crime psychology that was permeating the country. It had grown from a simple fad to a mania. It was spreading too far, too fast, and too high in a country that he had spilled blood for. The trials and courts-martial of the guilty officers in the Vietnam $12 million swindle were still in the news headlines by the time Mark limped away from Letterman. He was weak in body, unsure in purpose when he flew back to the only home he had known. Los Angeles. He had grown up there in one foster home after another, six that he could remember. His parents had died in a car wreck with his brothers and sister when he was seven. Mark hardly remembered his father. He had been a tall, slender Welshman who had come from the Midwest to act in the movies. He soon quit films to work on the railroad. Only recently, he learned that his mother had been almost pure Cheyenne Indian, with a bit of German thrown in. He didn't have a photograph of either one. Mark sat in the Los Angeles airport for an hour, trying to decide what to do. At last, he telephoned his old college football coach. Slowly, Coach Stoner wormed the story from Mark and insisted that he come for a long talk. Mark had been more than a three-year varsity flanker back for Coach Stoner. For four years, he had lived with the coach's family. Mark at last admitted what he needed was a hole to crawl into where he could recuperate for a couple of months. Coach Stoner had been thinking about Mark even before he phoned. A week before, the coach had a call from a quietly efficient man wearing a conservative suit with a small bulge under the left arm. The man said he was interested in finding Mark, that he had a good position for him. 
He suggested that it was with the government, but did not actually say so. He told Coach Stoner that he would be in touch with him every week, in case Mark showed up. When the visitor left, Coach Stoner called the Los Angeles office of the FBI, identified himself, and asked them about the visit. The agent in charge said they had no knowledge of Mark Harden and were not making any inquiries about him. Mark nodded. He knew there would be others hunting him. They had tried again to kill him in the Saigon hospital. Only a smuggled forty-five under his pillow had saved him. The Army brass figured they still had a score to settle. He grimaced as pain stabbed him again. His books weren't closed with them yet, either, not for all those months spent in a hospital. That same day, Coach Stoner arranged for Mark.